You're listening to a message from Victory Dumaguete. We are on the third installment of our series called What Shapes Us. Started off this series with Mark preaching on God. And last week we've looked into creation and fall. If you folks remember, we started with a premise that says every person has a confessional statement. Our words form our world. That's what we said last week. Perhaps just to briefly explain those words. When we say that every person has a confessional statement, we basically are saying that not one of us can actually claim that we don't have a creed or something that we believe in. Every single one of us has a confessional statement. And then eventually, we also said that our words are perhaps day-to-day words, the words that we embrace as a family, eventually they form our world. Eventually they form our world. And if you remember, we also said that there is a distinction between many of us and the distinction has something to do with how we embrace the Bible. So meaning to say, all of us here are Christians, it's true. Some of you have been a Christian for quite some time now, but at the end of the day, there is something that distinguishes many of us. It is the fact that says that Scripture, the standard for all matters of faith, conduct, and values. Meaning to say, as Christians, we ought to be Bible-believing Christians. That's basically what we said. We said that our worldview, our, our belief system are all influenced by God's Word. All right? So I'd like first to turn your Bibles for a while to 1 Corinthians. It is 1 Corinthians. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. Then I'll jump to verses 45 and verse 47. In fact, I'm not really going to exposit this text because I'm going to explain some other text later. But anyway, I want to read this for everyone. It says, For us in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Then verse 45 says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. On the first week, Mark covered the subject of God in our statement of faith. This series, by the way, is looking into our statement of faith. It's a deviation from our miracles theme this year. So last week, we have ended by looking into creation and fall. That's what we've looked into. I want to connect last week's preaching to what we're going to be discussing here. So as we unpack who Jesus is, I pray that you would see how this connects with creation and fall. Meaning to say, the preaching here is highly beneficial to those who were actually here last Sunday. All right? So if you want to fully embrace this, then you will have to look, you know, dig that in our, in our Spotify or YouTube. Okay? So here's what we have outlined as we've covered creation and fall. The first thing that we'd like for us to embrace and understand as Christians is this statement. There was a historical Adam. So when we talk about Adam coming from Scripture, we're not talking about a symbolism. We're not talking about a fiction. We're not talking about a myth. We're talking about a historical Adam, a man that has lived in this world. 
Now, the other aspect that I'd like for us to embrace is the fact that there was also a historical garden. This is the best approach because I want you to understand this. Your salvation actually has no bearing if you don't believe this. All right? So, how do I put it? It's good to say that you can actually go ahead and start questioning your own salvation if you don't believe in these two things. Clear enough? All right? So, if you feel like you are truly saved, then this is something that you have to first settle and establish in your mind. I do understand that there are so many teachings out there in your school, but at the end of the day, because you are scripture-believing, our worldview is scripture-formed, Bible teaches us that there was a historical Adam, and there was a real place called the Garden of Eden, the Garden in Eden, or the Garden of the Lord. All right? That's the first thing that we have to understand. You folks remember the definition of God's kingdom by Grames Goldsworthy. He said, God's kingdom is, if you remember this, is God's people in God's place under God's rule. Perfect, right? You remember that. I think I made it clear. You have remember those two words, in and under. All right? So God's kingdom is God's people. God had a people for himself, placed them in a garden, and they were under God's rule. Another thing that I'd like for us to embrace is the fact that there was a shift, if you remember. If you read Genesis chapter 1, you go to Genesis chapter 2, you go to Genesis chapter 3, you would notice that there was a shift in the name of God. Genesis chapter 1 starts with the word Elohim, and that refers to the general name of God. And then interestingly, look at this, interestingly, it starts shifting from Elohim to the name Yahweh, God our Lord, which is, by the way, the covenant name of God. Right? So it's, it goes from his general name to his covenant name. General name to covenant name. Alright? So general name to covenant name. In what aspect? During when? When God starts relating with men. This is just a faint example, but my legal name, some of you know, is actually Rashid. But I go by Archie simply because that's what my mom and dad called me when I was a kid. To other people, when I go to BIR, when I go to PSA, they can call me Rashid all they want. But for people that I am intimate with, that I have a relationship with, I go by Archie. For God, as we understand here, it happens when God starts relating with men. His name shifts from his general name to his covenant name. Now, why is that important? Why is the name change important? Why is the name shift important? It is important because it gives us a picture that Adam actually had a covenant with God. Not too many people know this, so there's a secret for you. You'll sound a bit, you know, at least a notch more intelligent than your other Christian friends. But here's the catch. Adam actually had a covenant with God. You don't get to read much about it, but it's true. Adam had a covenant with God. It's actually called the covenant of works. We've actually covered this in our Roman series back in 2020. So Adam had a covenant with God. And according to Brandon Crow, here's what he says about this. He says that in the context of a covenant, love and obedience go hand in hand. You remove covenant, then obedience is just obedience. 
But in the context of a covenant, love and obedience go hand in hand. So we all know what happened. Adam did not obey God. Then, what does that tell us? It tells us then that Adam actually didn't obey because he didn't love. Catch it? He didn't obey because he didn't love. He didn't love and that is why he didn't obey. So, I don't know with you, but it actually can be an application for many of us. I want us to understand that when we do not obey, then it only means to say that we do not love. It's all in the context of a covenant. Clear enough? This is basically what happened. When Adam fell, he was kind of like a steam train. He was the head. When he fell, the rest of the cars went down with him. Catch it? So meaning to say, what happened here was, when Adam fell head first, the rest of the cars of the steam train went down with him into that ravine. What I'm trying to say here is this, Adam being our federal head or being our own representative brought all of us into this huge cosmic mess called sin. If you are an Israelite and your president, your prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu declares war, even if you're not at the forefront of the war, even if you're not the one who declared war, you are in the war by virtue of you being a person of Israel. If at one point, if at one point, you know, the Philippines declares war in wherever in the West Philippine Sea, any ROTC people in the house? Kita-kita tayo. But it doesn't mean if you're under LTS or CWTS, it doesn't mean that you're not at war. Are you folks catching this? That is basically a picture of a federal head. Adam's sin basically brought all of us down that ravine. So how did we end this? As a result, this is our predicament right here. Okay, what happened was I did say that God's kingdom is God's people in God's specific place under God's rule. And because of the disobedience of men, this patch of land right here, this patch of land right here, which was called the garden in Eden or the garden of the Lord where there was supposedly a perfect communion, perfect devotion, perfect fellowship was taken away from us because Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and it gives us a picture that paradise was lost. Paradise was lost. So now what? Last week, we ended there. Creation, fall. You guys want to hear the good news? Or we'll end with a fall. All right? Paradise was lost, so now what? Here's what's interesting. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, people would call this a proto-evangelion or a seed that's germinating. So when all of this cosmic mess happened right before the eyes of God, when they were going to be separated from the presence of God, God said something. You folks remember this, right? You folks remember this. When Eve sinned, when Adam sinned, what did God do? God starts asking or questioning Eve. Catch that? He questions Eve. He questions Adam, but he doesn't question the devil. 
The question there supposedly was to draw out repentance. Eve and Adam had the opportunity to tell the Lord what had truly happened. The question there actually was a question of grace, a question of mercy. But here's basically what happened. To the serpent, there was no question, but rather there was a declaration. There was an announcement. God announced something as early as Genesis chapter 3. He says, for you, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So as early as Genesis chapter 3, God starts talking about what? God starts talking about an offspring. He starts talking about, about a he. He starts talking about a man who's going to what? Who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Because of this, God has embarked on a huge, huge project. God gets himself into a huge, huge project. And what is this project? What is the purpose of this project? Now, I want you to understand this. The purpose of his project now is to regain paradise for man. To regain paradise for man. That's basically, you know what I'm doing? I'm actually telling you the story of the scripture. He embarks on a huge project. To what? To regain paradise for man. Now look at this. How in the world will God accomplish this? For God to accomplish this, he would usher in the second Adam, the true and better Adam, the last Adam, and that is Christ Jesus our Lord. That's basically the story of our scripture. First Adam messed up big time. First Adam caused all of us to fall into sin, to fall into that ravine. So God embarks on a huge project to restore this paradise for men. To restore this paradise for you and for me to have what? A fellowship back with God. And for him to do this, he needs to usher in a new Adam, the true Adam, a better Adam, the second Adam, or the Bible also calls him the last Adam. All right, I'd like for us to turn your Bibles for to John chapter 18. If you open your Bibles, if you open your Bibles, anyone here who's read your Bible from cover to cover, here's what's fascinating, friends. As you progress from Genesis to Revelation, and I want you to open your eyes when you read that, as you progress from Genesis to Revelation, you would see and you would observe that there are so many divine reversals. There are so many divine reversals, meaning to say, if you go to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, move forward to the New Testament, you would see that there are so many things in the New Testament that became an undoing of the Old Testament. There were several divine reversals in God's Word, and rightly so, because your Bible is actually called a story of redemption. For God to redeem, He needs to restore. Amen? For God to redeem, he needs to reverse that which was caused by the first Adam. That's basically the work of Christ. You know, Scripture presents Jesus as the last Adam to come and regain in our place what the first Adam actually lost. I want you to always understand that you know, Scripture presents Christ as the last Adam 
to come and regain in our place what the first Adam lost. What the first Adam lost, Christ regained. Look at this, John chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. I want to show you some contrast between the first garden and the second garden. So as we read this, I want you to use your mind for a while and your imagination. As we read John chapter 18, think about the first garden and another garden. Think about the first Adam and the second Adam. Who's the second Adam, by the way? Christ is. Who's the last Adam? Christ is. Right? Good. Look at this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. You know what procure is? Procure is to buy Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, look at this, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given? Interesting, isn't it? Look, the first garden, like what I said, was a real patch of land. It was a real patch of land. Now, I've asked this last Sunday, what comes into your mind when you think about this garden? Anyone here loves gardening? What comes into your mind? You think about what? You think about different kinds of animals, perhaps. You think about different kinds of trees or fruit-bearing trees. That's how beautiful the garden is. Why is it beautiful? Friends, guess what? It's called a paradise. Right? It's called a paradise. That place was called a paradise. Now, in John chapter 18, I want to show you a bit of a contrast to that paradise. It says here, you know, John said, if you look at verse 1, it says here that he went across the brook or the place called Kidron. And the garden was actually there. So if you pause for a while and you try to think, what is this all about? Where is Kidron? I haven't really looked into that, but I've looked for an Old Testament passage that describes what Kidron is. If the Garden of Eden was a beautiful place, look at the Garden in Kidron. It says here in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 40, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron. Catch it? To the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. What does it tell us? If the Garden of Eden was a paradise, if the Garden of Eden was a place of four rivers, Euphrates, Tigris, and all of this river, this 
place right here, this garden in Kidron, was what? It was a place of dead bodies and ashes. In reality, it's no garden at all. It's a place of dead bodies and ashes. But here's what I want us to understand. Look at this. But God says, look at this. But God says, this place is sacred. Catch it? The first garden was sacred. This garden, even with its lack of beauty, was also sacred. Why? Why is this a sacred place? It's a sacred place because this is where the second Adam will basically show or reverse the curse that happened in the first garden. So this is a far cry from the first. The first garden, the Garden of Eden, was a place of beauty and peace. All right? It was a place of harmony. This place is a place of desolation. But I want us to understand, you know, John wants us to see this. You know, he's not just writing this, you know, um, randomly. He wants us to see this because at the end of the day, he wants us to compare in our mind the garden that was given to Adam and what Adam made out of it and the second garden that was given to Christ and what Christ made of it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Look at this. This, is, this happened in the first garden. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And a man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. From the presence of Yahweh among the trees in the garden. Why were they hiding in the first place? Because they've lost their innocence, isn't it? Now, you don't hide if you're not guilty. You don't hide if you're not full of shame. You don't hide. Look at this. You don't hide if there's no judgment. Catch it? When they don't be fooled by the word cool. All right? It simply says cool of the day. But it doesn't necessarily mean that God was cool with what they did. Catch it? When they heard God walking in the cool of the day, they realized, what was this? This is the day of reckoning. This is the day of judgment. And because of that, they started hiding behind the, leaf, the fig leaves. Behind the trees, the bushes, and covered themselves with fig leaves. That's basically what happened here. It was a day of reckoning. And if you look at what happened in this place right here, it's kind of different because it says here in John chapter 18, when judgment came to the second Adam, Remember that? Judas, with everything that he has procured, right? The moment they were walking in the garden, what was their question, by the way? What was their question? Who's Jesus of Nazareth? Isn't it? What does Jesus do? That's also a point of judgment. What does Jesus do? Hid himself behind Peter? Nope. He didn't hide behind Peter. Peter, ikaw yung matapang, ikaw yung gumarap sa kanila. No, it wasn't like that. Jesus said, I am he. Those are the reversals that we're seeing here. Now, Jesus was like, all right, here I am. I am now going to take the burden of experiencing the judgment for every single one of you. It's interesting because if you look at this, you know, the place of dead bodies and ashes here is actually the picture of our reality. Our life, look at this, apart from Christ, that is your reality. Your life is just full of dead bodies and ashes. 
apart from the grace of God. Look at this. Don't you think that when God was walking in the cool of the day, when he asked Adam, where are you? Don't you think that God could have judged them right there and then? What do you think? Do you think God could have judged them? Of course God could have judged them. God not judging them was actually a picture of what? Was actually a picture of mercy. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand this. Instead of judgment, they got an announcement. Right? Instead of judgment, they got an announcement. And the announcement was in Genesis chapter 3. That someone will crush the head of the serpent. And it is going to be the second Adam. And that is basically a picture of grace that's given to every single one of us. Jesus steps forward to his own betrayer. That's why if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want us to notice the word in, all right? The word in, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for as in Adam all thy, so also in Christ shall people be made alive. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, every single person in this world is not divided between Palestinians or Israelis or Filipinos or Bulgarians or Malaysians or Thais or whatever. We're not divided that way. We're simply divided by these words right here. Are we in Christ? Or are we still in Adam? And I want us to understand this as Christians. What we have lost in Adam we gain in Christ. What we've lost in Adam, we gain in Christ. As I was looking into this, when I was a new Christian, one of my first questions was this. When God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, you know that, right? They were sent out of the garden. He placed a sword at the entrance of that garden. You guys remember that? There was a sword there. And what does it mean? What does it mean? Why is there a sword in the entrance of the garden? Why was there a sword in the entrance of the garden? It gives us a picture that there was a sword there. So that, it gives us a picture that nobody can get back to paradise. No one. No one can go back to paradise. That's why there was a sword there. No one can go back to paradise. Unless he goes under the sword. Unless that person will go under the sword and that's the only time that paradise will be open back to people. You know what Tim Keller was saying about this? He said, in Jesus, he said, we're given a second Adam, not a second chance. So at the end of the day, choose your representative. Choose your federal head. Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? In essence, let me put it this way, and I'm going to end with this. There was a tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God's command to Adam and Eve was this. Do not eat of this tree. You folks remember that? Do not eat of this tree. And he was like, in essence, this is what he says. You obey me and you will live. That's basically, if you want to understand the essence of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, here it is. You guys obey me and I will bless you. That's the Garden of Eden. 
You obey me and I will bless you. And there was a tree right there. To the second Adam, the last Adam, this is basically what God was saying. You obey me in that tree, the cross, you obey me and I will crush you. The first Adam, you obey me, I will bless you. Here, God tells him, you obey me and I will crush you. The point being is this. Jesus is the first and last person in history to be told that obedience would bring him a curse. All that for him to go under the cross to regain paradise for you and for me. Turn your Bibles with me for a while to Luke chapter 23. Look at Luke chapter 23 for a while, and this is really interesting. I want to ask a question first. When Adam and Eve disobeyed, what was lost in the first place? Paradise, right? Paradise was lost. Look at verse 39 in your Bibles. It says here, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence and of condemnation, and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, why don't you look at this? Look at this. Look at this. Verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I want you to carefully look at what Jesus said. Here's what Jesus said. He said to him, truly, I say to you, today, everybody say today. Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. When I was a new Christian, here's what I had in mind. I read it and, wow, I know what he's talking about. I feel like, I look at this, if I use my own words, okay, several years ago, I would have said, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in heaven. I would have thought that way. I actually thought that way. It's basically talking about heaven. But guess what, friends? Guess what? Look, he doesn't say heaven. He doesn't say heaven. He says paradise. I start looking at this and realize, look at these different words in Greek and Hebrew. In English, it's paradise. In its original Greek, it's called paradisos, which is where we derive the word paradise. In its original Hebrew, it's word again. If you look at the definition of this, guess what, friends? It's not heaven, it's garden. It's basically garden right there. So, if you look into that, it tells Jesus wasn't talking about, guess what? He wasn't talking about heaven. He was actually talking about the Garden of Eden. The Garden of the Lord. That's what Jesus was talking about. 
So I ask further and think about this. If that is the case, if that is the case, where is paradise? Where is paradise? Because we've lost paradise. And interestingly, if you look at the book of Genesis, it starts with a story of a garden. Turn your Bible with me for about to Revelations chapter 22. We're not going to read this, but I just want you to see it for yourself. Look at this. If you go to Revelation 22, this entire chapter, this entire chapter talks about what? The restoration of the garden. The restoration of the garden. So, it's kind of confusing because I want you to understand this. Jesus said, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Guess what? It's like the immediate future. But if I go to Genesis, it tells me that the garden was in the past. If I go to Revelation, it tells me that the garden is in the future future. So where is the garden? Is it in the past? Is it in the immediate future? Or is it in the future future? You know, Jesus was actually making a statement. And I want you to understand this. Paradise was lost. That's true. But Jesus was making a statement. He was saying, guess what? Yes, we're so consumed with where the garden is. But the garden, the paradise, is no longer about a certain zip code. It's no longer about a geography. It's no longer about a specific place. Because paradise is a person. That's why he says, today you will be with me. I am the paradise. In essence, that is what Jesus was saying. In every funeral service, in any burial service, that we go and join in, when a person was passed on to glory is a Christian, we don't actually consume our mind with the heavenly places where he is at. We don't actually consume our mind with where he is at, but we consume our mind with who he is with. And that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our very own paradise. We've lost paradise. But friends, ladies and gentlemen, we have gained Christ. Our real paradise, our true paradise. And I think about this when I say paradise is a person, it gives us a picture that, you know what, at the end of the day, for all of you who are Bible confessing, Bible believing, Bible embracing Christian, it gives a picture to all of you that nothing is so important in this world more than Christ in our life. Amen. That you may have so many losses in this world, as long as you have Christ, you have gained everything. This actually, when Jesus was saying that, he could actually say, you can actually lose your life, you lose your friends, you lose your family, it's going to be fine as long as you have me, amen. As long as you have me. I think about this and I realize, the question for us is this, who is Jesus to us? Are we fixated with the mansions that the Bible tells us about? Or are we fixated with our relationship with Christ? Does Christ satisfy your soul? Are we aiming for a good life? Just a good life? Or a life with Christ? Amen. You just heard a message from Victory Dumaguete. For more messages like these, 
or to access other resources, please visit victorytumaguete.org or like our page on Facebook.